In July of 1855, a stagecoach arrived in Salt Lake City. A man dismounted, red hair and clothes flapping in the breeze. The Latter-day Saints were then introduced to William W. Drummond, the newly appointed federal judge of the Utah Territory. Within a short period of time, the infamous judge would go down in the history of the Latter-day Saints as one of the most colorful villains to face off against them. On today's episode, we will explore the story of the infamous judge, W.W. Drummond. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. Drummond joined the federal judiciary during a critical time. The federal courts had become something of a flashpoint of conflict between the Latter-day Saints and the federal government. Because Utah was a territory, not a state, the people had no say in who sat on the federal bench. Instead, the administration in Washington, D.C. simply chose who would serve. Sometimes they asked for local input, and many times they did not. Drummond arrived for his new appointment, traveling with his wife, Mrs. Ada Drummond, By all accounts, Ada was very memorable. She often sat next to Judge Drummond while he was presiding in court, and they would flirt and chat with each other, even during the arguments of counsel, even in death penalty cases. Judge Drummond lost no time in attacking what the Latter-day Saints viewed as their right to self-government. In one of the first sessions of court, he began the proceedings by launching a diatribe at the legal foundation of the hard-won settlements up and down the Utah Territory. Judge Drummond declared that the people of Utah had, quote, acted in profound ignorance and in abnegation of all law. He attacked the probate courts, the claims to water, timber, and grazing land, and, for good measure, declared that the people of Utah had no right to incorporate their own cities. Hosea Stout, the territorial attorney general, sat dumbfounded listening to Judge Drummond. He later wrote, After abolishing and setting aside nearly all the laws of Utah, Drummond most graciously supplied in their place federal law and his own court rulings. But what horrified Hosea Stout even more was that he quickly saw Judge Drummond appeared absolutely desperate to hang somebody. In the first case called, a young Native American named Enos was put on trial for allegedly participating in an attack on a group of army soldiers the year before. And this case highlights another clash between the Latter-day Saints and Judge Drummond. That was in their attitudes and policies towards the native tribes and peoples of Utah. Brigham Young summed up his policy during this time by saying, it's better to feed the Indians than to fight them. (laughs) But Drummond scoffed at this bread-butter program, as he called it, and instead sought a show of force to demonstrate to the native tribes that he, and not Brigham Young, was in charge. After convening the trial against Enos, Judge Drummond first tried to get the young man to confess his role in the attack, and this failing, he told Hosea Stout to come into court with an interpreter and introduce evidence that he had confessed. Hosea Stout believed that Drummond was determined to hang the young man, whether he was guilty or innocent. However, the jury, which was made up of Latter-day Saints, came back with a verdict, not guilty. 
This threw Drummond into an apoplectic fit, and he shouted at the jurors that he should hold them all in contempt. But he had no power to hang anyone that the jury acquitted, and the young man was set at liberty. Shortly after this, Judge Drummond made history as the first federal judge in the Utah Territory to find himself on the other side of a criminal prosecution with the savage attack on Levi Abrams. Levi Abrams was a Jewish convert to Mormonism living in the Utah Territory. Either because Abrams had beat Judge Drummond in a poker game, or possibly because Abrams said something unflattering about Mrs. Ada Drummond, whatever the reason, Judge Drummond sent his servant Cato to savagely attack Abrams. In reaction to this, the probate courts, controlled by the Latter-day Saints, issued arrest warrants for both Drummond and his servant, and a posse, led by the notorious Wild Bill Hickman, seized Judge Drummond and threw him in jail. Throwing Judge Drummond in jail provided no small amount of amusement to the Latter-day Saints. One local citizen, Joseph Kane, wrote, The Drummond light does not burn as clear as when it was first discovered. If he wants lodgings, I think the local jailer will accommodate him with a private study cell where he will have ample opportunity of studying the Utah laws. Drummond immediately filed a writ of habeas corpus to the Territorial Supreme Court and argued that the probate courts had no power to enforce criminal law. This was a little awkward because the Territorial Supreme Court was made up of Chief Judge Kinney, Judge Stiles, and uh, Judge Drummond himself. But when the court convened to hear the motion, Drummond was brought in as the prisoner. He tried to walk up to the bench to rule on his own case, but the posse forcibly sat him back down at the prisoner's table. For their part, Judges Kinney and Stiles were at a loss as to what to do or how to proceed. Ultimately, Drummond withdrew his motion, preventing the Supreme Court from striking down the jurisdiction of the probate courts. And the local probate court, in turn, dropped the charges against Drummond. The next Sunday, Brigham Young preached a sermon in the tabernacle. The judges, he informed his listeners, are not here as kings or monarchs. They should be made to keep the laws of the territory as well as any other citizen. If they refuse to obey the law, they should be put in the way that they will be made to obey the law. He then told them, if you see a judge put the city under martial law, you should pity him and give him a piece of cake. The Latter-day Saints loved this sermon. Wilford Woodruff declared that it was one of the greatest sermons ever delivered on the earth. Samuel Pitchforth, a local citizen, in a letter to John Taylor, excitedly wrote, Brother Brigham preached on the conduct of the judges and lowered the feathers of His Royal Highness Drummond I. You may expect to see the announcement of his exit for fair climes when the snow melts. Following this episode, a somewhat humbled Judge Drummond wrote to Brigham Young and asked for his advice in calming troubles between the native tribes and the federal government. Brigham Young responded and recommended that the judge issue an arrest warrant for one native man known as Squash. Squash had continually raided cattle from the Latter-day Saints despite having received gifts and benefits from them. This narrowly focused approach might remove some of the trouble without sparking a, a wider conflict. 
But rather than follow Brigham Young's advice, Drummond decided to issue a series of arrest warrants for a number of native tribesmen and ordered the marshal, Thomas Johnson, to round them up and bring them all in. When he saw the list, Joseph Haywood, a Latter-day Saint and the U.S. Marshal of the Territory, warned the judge that an effort to arrest so many native tribesmen would result in loss of life and difficulties in the surrounding settlements. But Drummond ignored this and ordered the posse to carry out his order. When Brigham Young heard about Drummond's broad, sweeping arrest campaign, he immediately issued a circular letter countermanding the judge, ordering the posse to stand down and disband. As territorial governor and superintendent of Indian affairs, he, not Drummond, was in charge of relations with the settlers and the tribes. But the letter did not reach the posse in time, and when Judge Drummond's posse found the native tribesmen on the western side of Utah Lake, a gun battle erupted, resulting in three native men killed and six wounded. Moreover, the rest of the warriors escaped and immediately began raiding Latter-day Saints settlements. All told, this resulted in eight Latter-day Saints killed and 150 head of cattle stolen. Brigham Young was furious. He again took to the pulpit and denounced the old, gray-headed know-nothings of the federal court. More privately, he was much freer in his assessment, writing to John Bernheisel that Drummond, during his short time on the federal bench, had often, and in various ways, transcended his authority and demeaned himself very much like a dog or wolf, vicious and brutal, proud as a peacock, and ignorant as a jackass. Moreover, Brigham Young was angry with the Latter-day Saints who had participated in Drummond's posse and who seemed eager for a war with the native peoples. Brigham openly mused from the pulpit that one way to solve the problem might be that the hotheads of the church, instead of joining Judge Drummond's endless posses and triggering wars with the tribes, they instead could find themselves on the receiving end of five-year mission calls over the seas to parts unknown. This warning apparently had a salutary effect. When Deputy Marshal and Latter-day Saint Thomas Johnson next met with Judge Drummond, Drummond seemed pleased with what had happened and the so-called success of his posse. Then, he tried to give Johnson another writ to carry out another round of arrests. Johnson was not at all excited about the prospect of a five-year foreign mission and plainly told Judge Drummond that he would be damned before he served another one of his writs and that the judge and his writs could both go to the devil. But the showdown between the Latter-day Saints and Judge Drummond was only just beginning. In our next episode, we'll continue the story of William Drummond, the runaway husband, runaway father, and runaway judge. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Adventures in Mormon History. For the material in this podcast, we owe a special thanks to the late Ronald W. Walker. A link to his 2016 article in the Journal of Mormon History, along with other sources, can be found in the show notes. I'm your host, Nate Olson.